Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Always good to speak with Jim McCon with Principal Global Investors their chief executive officer, and really looking at the overarching linkage of investment into all the other economic mumbo-jumbo we walk uh, talk about. If nominal GDP is reduced, if it's a single-digit world, why are we seeing double-digit equity gains? We're seeing double-digit equity gains, gains, Tom, because of primarily the deregulation and lower, uh, and lower tax um, agenda of the new administration in the United States. Uh, it's, it's really just arithmetic that lower tax makes equities more valuable. The deregulation is seen for many companies as potentially increasing profits, for example, in the banking sector. So I think that's what's going on here, rather than discounting of a lot more future nominal growth. How does that affect how you're allocating right now? Uh, are you still very keen on, on U.S. equities? Yeah, pretty keen on U.S. equities. I think they're a keep up to wait, keep up to your strategic weight and buy on setbacks would be my view on U.S. equities. I think uh, in credit, it's much more nuanced. I don't really like 240 on the 10-year. I think you have to look at other classes of debt where the yields are higher, where the spreads are maybe attractive, like high-yield bonds, uh, perhaps uh, real estate debt. I think those are the areas to be allocating to. But I think, uh, you know, don't go... Uh, don't go undervaluing the American private sector, because regardless of the noise coming from the political system, that actually is, I think, the strength of the U.S. economy. What are the bright spots as you see them in, in real estate? What, what makes it attractive to you right now? I think what makes it attractive is that it's only really partially recovered from the financial crisis. It's taken a long time. And if you take a quality portfolio of U.S. commercial real estate, you're still talking about a yield over 5% with... Uh, not much oversupply. It's quite localized. I think there are qualifications to what I'm saying, like uh, I wouldn't have uh, much interest in multifamily apartments in the major cities. Those have got bid up too much. And maybe you've got some problems in retail land because of the move to online. So a lot of shopping malls are basically semi-obsolete. But, you know, having said that, offices, distribution properties, um, industrial um, those are really uh, pretty interesting right now and have very attractive yields. How interesting is Europe to you right now? I was looking at the Bloomberg over the weekend. They now do betting odds for the, the French election. Who's, who's uh, leading the, the odds there for, for the next French president? Given all of the political uncertainty there, is, is it possible to be optimistic about, say, European equities right now? I think to be optimistic about European equities, you'd have to assume several positive surprises, like fixing the banking system. I'm concerned that a weak banking system, particularly in Italy and Germany, will continue to constrain European growth. You've seen a bounce in Europe, even in the UK, uh, but certainly in the Eurozone in the last few months. That's really just a result of weaker currency. 
I think if uh, if you get a, a currency as weak as the euro and the pound were last year, you have to get some boost to growth. I don't see the fundamentals driving it that way, and I think impaired credit in the economy will continue to be a problem. The other issue to watch for in Europe, and I don't know any better than anybody else what's going to happen, is the French election, then later the German and Dutch elections, maybe an Italian election within the next year or so. I mean, all of those appear likely to lead to a swing against the European Union, and that would tend to be bad for trade and be quite potentially disruptive. So I think look out for that. You know, the president here talks uh, a lot about getting to 4% growth. How likely is that, do you think, that, that we'll get there here in the, in the near to medium term? I think it's uh, definitely medium term rather than near term if it happens. Um, the agenda that they've, they're planning to put in place, deregulation, lower taxes, infrastructure spend, could lead to 4% growth maybe two years out. But the only way that happens if there, is if there turns out to be more spare capacity in the U.S. economy than most observers think. Uh, we're looking at a year when fiscal and monetary policy might actually be quite out of joint looking forward. You know, M Janet Yellen has another year as Fed chair and uh, has certainly talked about the economy getting close to capacity. And so uh, it'll be a little bit of a experiment here to see if the expansionary fiscal policy can counter both the monetary policy and the low unemployment rate. Fundamentally, the new administration's plans for the economy are dependent on more people coming back into the workplace. Remains an open issue whether they will. Help me here with a presumption of inflation, the presumption of some kind of growth. Do you follow right over to a presumption of increased investment? I just don't buy it. I, that, I, don't, yeah. I don't get horse and cart there. No, I think horse and cart is the right analogy, uh, Tom, because when the horse <laughs> and cart was replaced by the railroad, it changed the whole pattern of investment 150 years ago. Uh, what we're seeing now is much of the capital investment infrastructure is being replaced by technology. You're seeing the sharing economy. You're seeing increased automation. I think that means that because of IT systems, the efficiency of capital investments a lot higher than it used to be. I see the structural excess of savings over investment continuing, which is one of the reasons why I think yields will be lower for longer than most people think, in spite of the new administration's policies. Square that with what we've heard on the campaign trail during the transition these first few days of the, the Donald Trump presidency about uh, a, a renaissance of manufacturing, bringing back jobs. Not a whole lot of talk of, of, of bringing jobs that will be high-tech or uh, in part automated, but bringing back steelworking, say. What's your sense of the likelihood of that happening, and the, the, the likelihood that the government could engineer something like that? I think over the next five years, the chances of the old industrial jobs returning is basically zero. If you built steelworks now in the United States, they wouldn't employ all that many people. They'd be highly automated. And that's uh, of necessity in order to be competitive. The hope for jobs is around technology, is around retraining and education. And the hope for jobs is there, but it's not recreating the 1950s and some sort of image of, of old-style manufacturing because technology has moved on. Do you uh, worry about a recession, the prospect for a recession at this point? Are there any signs that make you uh, somewhat worried about that? There's two ways, David, that a, that a recession could happen. One is a nasty geopolitical incident. You could see it from not so much a 
and if not so much an instance of terrorism, but more from a very negative reaction to it by governments shutting down trade and travel. You could see it from tariffs and a trade war. That would cause a recession, would put people out of work, although it would be designed to do the opposite. So I think there are points like that. You know, a major European bank going down, which is not impossible, that would cause, uh, that would cause a recession. Now, is that the most likely outturn? No, it's not. But I think it is possible. The negative tail risk in the economy is more than it usually is, just because of these political, right. financial, geopolitical points. Very quickly, one thing we haven't talked about this morning, Jim, is the idea of U.S. purchase versus foreign purchase. Three years out, five years out, can, can foreign stocks again have a big year where they catch up? Well, they could have a big year where they catch up, Tom, if some of these tail risks don't happen. But I don't really expect it, and I wouldn't bank on it. I think for the next five years, I would prefer to be in the U.S. than in most foreign stocks. The only proviso to that is on a certainly five to ten year view, I think the emerging market play is not gone. I think there will continue to be uh, relative economic growth from emerging markets. Yeah. But it could be hurt by these tail risks in the way. Stick with the U.S. And, and you wonder what it means, currency adjusted. Jim McCollum, thank you so much with Principal Global and Investors. David, I'm totally depressed. You are. Sam Rowe put out on Twitter uh -huh. <laughs> a photograph of Robert Hormat's David Malpass, just selected by the Trump administration, yeah. and myself You're there from too? 12 years ago. No, I, have to oh, I thought he was joining the administration. Hormats, <laughs> Hormats has been like mummified. He hasn't aged a day. Hormats looks great. Yeah. Malpass and I look like we just got out of college. I'm if, pulling if this Sam up. Look Rowe at that. Just, wow. You look so tan, Tom. Yeah, well, you know, that was my, <laughs> you know, it's, it's blood pressure. Where do you think Donald <laughs> Trump got the idea? You know, right for the man himself. I was very orange. Bob there. Hormats, though, does look the same. Yeah. Well done, I mean, it's Bob. Just, thank you, Sam, for. <laughs> Making me depressed on a Monday. Sam Rowe, formerly a business insider. Now joining us right now is Robert Cinch, and that is someone good to talk to on a Monday to, to sort of frame where we are. Bob, I want you to give us a primer on how following inflation trends links into where we're going. We got a big inflation week in the U.S., PPI, CPI. We had euro inflation resets today. Everybody's sort of migrating higher inflation after the big oil move. I get that. Why do I care? Sell me on why I need to follow inflation trends. Well, we should care, I think. Uh, good morning, guys, by the way. Uh, I think we should care only if uh, the central banks care, uh, because I think the, the primary transmission mechanism between the inflation numbers, because even if they pick up towards 2 2.5% in historic context, that's not a, a, you know, a, a devastating rate of inflation. So the only reason I think that, that markets need to care is whether the central banks care. And we continue to get massive balance sheet expansion out of the Bank of Japan. They've actually, if anything, had to accelerate their asset purchases to try to keep uh, JGB yields down. The ECB continues to expand its balance sheet and has pledged to do so for the rest of this year. So it's only if the central banks begin to adjust uh, their policy stance 
do I think markets have to be concerned about this particular level of inflation, whether it's 2% or 1.5% or 2.25%? To what extent does the ECB care right now, Bob? I remember that I remember that press conference with Mario Draghi maybe two back where it was like the, ele- the elephant in the room and, and, and he wasn't really addressing it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the ECB, uh, it's, it's kind of incredulous when Draghi goes up there and says we didn't even discuss tapering at the meeting. Um, you know, I don't know what else they would discuss for that many hours. But, um, look, the ECB is now, I think, in a, in a quandary because they didn't expect the economy to be uh, performing as well as it is. It looks like growth picking up from about 1.5%, maybe closing in on 2%, which by eurozone standards is is pretty robust um, the inflation numbers headline at least will be picking up close to two percent the core rate still around one um, and, and there's certainly a strong chorus within the ecb uh, leadership to step away from this uh, continued accumulation of, uh, of of assets on the balance sheet so i think you know the, the boj I, I just think they just don't know what to do and, and i'm not sure they'll change anything I think the central bank to watch going forward is the ECB, and, and does Draghi start to, to back away from his assurances that they'll continue to purchase assets for the rest of this year at a fairly aggressive pace? Give us the, the Bob Cinch read on this piece we were talking about a few minutes ago on the Bloomberg uh, by Brian Chipata looking at uh, foreign holdings of U.S. Treasuries falling by 3 or $40 billion for the March peak through the end of, of November. What's your, what's your sense of what we're seeing there? Well, I think there's two things going on. One is uh, reserves are down around the world, and that's a function primarily of the the stronger dollar, um, and and some countries having to to uh, spend some of their dollars uh, to support their currencies. The one that's interesting for me is China because their holdings of uh, of reserves are down about 190 billion um, yeah. since March. Whereas their reserves are only down 160 billion, so in the case of China, it looks like at least that there's been an active asset allocation shift away from treasuries to other securities. Now that can be an investment decision, that can be a political decision. We don't know what's what's driving it, but the numbers tell us that China's holdings of treasuries have actually <clears throat> declined more right. than their total assets over the period. And now, folks, for your benefit this morning, Robert Cinch on the quality of reserves. Do we have a clue what any given nation's FX reserves are? Isn't that something that can be made up on a whim, or is it actually a countable statistic? Well, you, you, you hope they're accountable statistics. They're, they're uh, reported to the IMF, and, and the IMF does keep a, a measure of these reserve holdings, and certainly... Um, as any of the data in China, it's it's released on a fairly regular basis. Um, you know, I think we have a reasonably good set of data on probably the top 10 or 15 countries in the world in terms of their reserve holdings. And beyond that, frankly, it, the magnitudes aren't large enough to really matter all that much. But but I, I do think the data is, uh, is is reasonably accurate, and certainly in the case of China, you know, down over a trillion dollars in reserves. Uh, you know, it's 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 pretty substantial, and you can you can sort of trace some of the uh, the movements in different markets. Now, remember these holdings of treasuries that we talked about. Um, that's not Chinese data. That's U.S. data. So that data is coming from the U.S. side, um, and as long as it's not fake data, um, you know, that's something that's been put out by the Treasury yeah. for 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 years now in terms of who's holding. 
um, treasury debt, and they can trace that reasonably accurately. Okay, but but like for example, Russia, do they have claims on their reserves that aren't visible? Have they been contractually linked to obligations down the road? For the most part, um, not. Um, you have seen reserve holdings in the past being used. For example, China used them oh, more than a decade ago now to, uh, to shore up their banking system. Yeah. Um, in, some, in some emerging market countries, there may be some, some claim on reserves. But I think for the most part, um, you know, when you, when you trace back some of these holdings, again, the, the, the check on this is whether data from other countries, in this case, you know, the Treasury's data on holdings mm-hmm. of its securities, mm-hmm. sort of line up in general movements with what the countries themselves are reporting for their reserve positions. Uh, we were talking earlier to Jordan Rochester of Nomura on the crime of trying to make money here. And he did a Bob Cinch on me, Bob. He talked about Sterling Kiwi, which was a great chart we put out. Do you have within the oddities of the political economic investment moment a trade that just screams opportunity? You know, I think that that uh, I still think the dollar has significant upside this year. I don't think the dollar necessarily has significant upside in the next couple of months. Um, so I think that that for people who want to get uh, you know pretty exotic in the options market, maybe you sell um, you know dollar volatility in the in the near term, uh, and you know over the next three right. months. So for example, you could you could sell a, um, a one twenty dollar yen call in the three months, but then buy it in the three to six month yeah. period because I do think as we get into the second half of the year. Uh, we are going to see the movements in, in fiscal policy, particularly tax policy, and I do think that drives the dollar significantly okay. higher. So $120 yen in the second half of the year yeah. seems a, a reasonable thing to, to focus on. To translate that into Monday morning English, folks, I just heard a primal scream out on 58th Street. <laughs> I believe what Mr. Cinch is saying is bring in premium, bring in income to your account uh, in the short term, and then maybe use that income or others to uh, make a position farther out on a dollar move and more volatility. I think, David, I got that half right. Yeah. Maybe three, Perfect. Three, perfect. Perfect, please. Uh, quickly here, Bob, we've got the Prime Minister of Canada in, in Washington today. What, what's uh, the one thing we should be paying attention to uh, in the Canadian economy right now? You know, the Canadian economy quietly has sort of mirrored this improvement in oil prices that we've seen since since early last year. Um, you know, Canada just had an employment report out on uh, uh, on Friday, uh, over 40,000 jobs uh, created again in Canada. Over the last six months, their average job gain has been about uh, just under 40,000. And believe it or not, that's been the, the fastest six months of job gains in Canada since back in 2002. So the Canadian economy is doing a little bit better. It'll be interesting to see what the Bank of Canada does on March 1st, which is their next policy meeting, um, You know whether they hint that maybe there's some policy move later in the year. Markets are not discounting or not expecting any policy moves out of the uh, or rate hikes out of the Bank of Canada uh, between now and the end of the year. So, again, there's another central bank well, that could respond to, to – to signs of higher inflation. Uh, let's, and let's come back with Bob Sitch. This is Bloomberg. Can a government have a stronger weak dollar policy? I, I, I don't buy it. I mean, I, I go back 20 years, Bob, to what you and I remember where strong dollar was gospel each and every day. 
But what was the outcome of that? Did we actually have a strong dollar? You know, uh, uh, intervention, verbal and, and actual, is uh, uh, the, the history suggests that unless policy backs it up, um, very unlikely to have much of a significant impact. And I think that's, uh, that continues to be the case. Um, strong dollar policy is something that I don't think uh, over the last 20 years has really been backed up with any changes in policy. Um, so I'm not sure that strong dollar policy, whether it exists or doesn't exist in, 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 uh, in terminology, really matters much at all. Um, you know, I'd go to, to, to a little bit different view. Have you ever heard anybody politically campaign on the fact that they're going to strengthen or weaken their currency? Well, maybe we've had a little bit of that here in the U.S., but I don't think we've, we've seen overt policy actions uh, that are specifically designed to move the currency. Um, so I don't think it really matters uh, much at all. I think the fundamentals will, will win out. We've seen that in the last couple of weeks where the administration was able to talk down the dollar pretty significantly. But now over the last six, seven weeks, uh, six, seven days, as things have quieted down, the dollar has crept right back up again. Yeah. And crept is the right word, David Groff. I mean, that's, it's a very crept screen. You, uh, you, Bob, have been looking at uh, at oil, looking at energy, and uh, I-, I noted a few minutes ago we saw this uh, announcement from the Saudis. They've they've announced their largest output cut in eight years. Uh, you've been looking at U.S. rig counts as well; those have been rising. What what are you seeing in the energy space right now? You know, I think energy uh, this year could be one of the more interesting markets, um, and, and interesting in the sense of what it tells us about who the swing producer is in oil. You know, there was a there was a time when you if you had this combination of events, let's let's recall that. You know, manufacturing activity has picked up substantially around the world um, over the last four or five months. You look at the, at the global manufacturing PMI, it's up to almost the highest level since early 2014. So you've had accelerating production activity around the world. You've had a significant output cut um, by Saudi Arabia and other members of OPEC and Russia. And yet the price has gone nowhere. In fact, if you look at volatility in the oil market, the, uh, the price volatility is the lowest in over two years. So you say, well, what's going on here? And you look at the cuts coming out of OPEC, and you look at, as you mentioned, the rig count here in the U.S., which is increasing right back up again. It's up 13% in the last four weeks. You say, well, who is the swing producer here? Does OPEC still have the same dominant power they used to? Um, or is the power shifting back to the U.S.? And I think there's some growing evidence that, in fact, the U.S. is becoming the swing producer, and that has major uh, implications for U.S. trade, uh, you know, trade balances for um, U.S. Uh, foreign policy, a whole host of factors. So, I think this is really pretty critical. Even though the price has been pretty stable, uh, we have seen a major substitution of U.S. production for OPEC production um, as we've come into the new year, and I think that that has broad-reaching ramifications. Bob, you gave us a great, great call on sterling. Uh, Everybody, the consensus without question was weaker sterling, and you stood up on the show and said, "Uh, maybe not, like literally on a dime. Even the queen queen went long sterling off with cinch (laughs) of Amherst. Pierpont said, enlighten us on sterling right now, a wise one. Have you seen the cinch move? And do we just presume now we finally get weaker uh, sterling at 125? You know, we did get up close to 130. Uh, we've dipped down uh, momentarily below 120, sitting right in the middle of that range right now at 125. I, I do think as we go forward, the combination of a stronger dollar and uh, weaker sterling probably gets us now down below 120. 
um, as we go later in the year. Um, and I think part of that is that that in the U.K., the economy showed a lot of resilience in the second half of last year after the Brexit vote. But I think a lot of that, if you look at it, were consumers. And I think consumers were buying in anticipation of higher prices to come. We're now starting to see those higher prices filter through yeah. into the U.K. economy. And that suggests to me that after you know pre-buying a lot last year to beat the price increases, we could see a meaningful slowdown in U.K. consumption as we go through 2017, um, and that's probably going to weigh down on sterling yeah. a little bit. So, yeah, I do think it was oversold. I think markets are getting a bit more neutral uh, at 125. At this juncture, I'd rather be a, a seller than a buyer of sterling. Well, there it is, folks. That's why you listen to Bloomberg Surveillance. Robert Singh, thank you so much. He's with Amherst uh, Pierpont. You know, that's you mark it down, David. I mean, it's imp- this is the nuance. Yeah. We look at vectors of what different people say, and we also look at sort of the rate of change of their vector. And there's a, a not not a sell on sterling, but nevertheless a pause in what has been a brilliant call on stronger year, uh, stronger sterling. Oh, the, over the, that was great. Robert Sinch, Always Bammers, talking about, yeah. Uh, Pure Pine. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Great pleasure now to bring in John Allison. He's former chairman and CEO of BB&T Corporation, a former president and CEO of the Cato Institute as well. He's now at Wake Forest. And Tom, I find this, you know, he, he we've talked about this before, but he occupies an amazing trifecta as someone who's gone to UNC and Duke and now is at, at Wake Forest. So much confusion therein. John Allison, you were interviewed to be Treasury Secretary. You've met with Stephen Mnuchin, the man picked ultimately to be Treasury Secretary, due to be confirmed by all accounts today by the U.S. Senate. You've spoken with him. What's your sense of the direction uh, this administration is going to take when it comes to economic policy? Well, um, first, I think Steve's a very smart guy, but he is he is a Wall Street guy, which I think, you know, means that you're probably going to get some of the same kind of policies you've seen in the past. When I when I talked with, with Stephen and met with uh, President Trump, their goal is growth, and they are very focused on growth, uh, which means lower taxes, less regulation, but they're quite willing to run very high deficits uh, under the belief that ultimately growth will take care of the deficits. So I think you'll see... Um, implemented strategies that they believe will will drive economic growth. John, how does a guy like you, who's been critical of uh, government sacks, of the of the role of Wall Street and government, reckon with the cabinet we're seeing put in place in, in Washington, D.C.? How much does it concern you that we have so many alums of Goldman Sachs there, that we have such a Wall Street influence in this president's cabinet? Um, I, uh, it concerns me some. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was hoping in some of those positions to have people with a very different perspective. I think if you're really concerned about um, helping the so-called common man and, and, and a lot of the support base that uh, President Trump received, you need people that understand those kind of markets. And, and having worked in a community banking environment and also dealt with Wall Street, uh, there is a kind of different mindset <clears throat> in community banking and community finance than there is on Wall Street. And I, <clears throat> I wish there was more representation there, although I would say this, overall the, the cabinet is a, a very impressive group and very smart people, and uh, so I, I think that's a positive. When we see Mr. Terullo resign, 
who I'm going to clearly state, and, and there's a great esteem for Mr. Tarullo across all of academics, and clearly a, a more liberal treatment of regulation. How do you replace Mr. Tarullo? I'm not sure I understand how a, quote, conservative or, quote, Rockefeller or, quote, libertarian government replaces Mr. Tarullo. Who do they put in that slot? Well, that is an interesting question. Um, what I would like to see is a different kind of answer. I'm a big supporter of the Choice Act, which Shep Hensarling has proposed in Congress. And basically, under the Choice Act, banks could choose to opt out of the Dodd-Frank by having proper level of capital, and, and they use 10% capital. You can argue about the level, but the idea, yeah. I think, is a real clear one. And so, because I don't think any regu- – here's the dilemma. As long as financial institutions are effectively – guaranteed by the FDIC, and we really haven't effectively dealt with too big to fail, uh, there's got to be regulation. On the other hand, the failure rate of properly capitalized institutions is extremely small, and we've never had a systematic failure where every bank, all the banks were properly capitalized. So I don't, I don't think anybody knows the right answer for regulation. Right. But you're, you, you're one of the great global experts on this. Are the Republicans on the same page as the certitude of Mr. Henseling of Texas A&M? I mean, is there a cohesive Republican view, John, or is it eight views as we go to replace Governor Tarullo? I think there are eight views, unfortunately. And I think a lot of the views are ignorant. And I don't mean that as an insult to anybody, but, you know, if you really— But you, but you just did. <laughs> You don't really have expertise in the financial arena. Letting go of regulation it can be scary. <laughs> so if you don't really understand, and if you've kind of heard what the popular press says about how the financial crisis happened, which I think is a very wrong uh, I think the Federal Reserve played a big role in causing the financial crisis, and housing policy played the biggest role, and that was government-sponsored. And, 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 and so if, if you have a wrong history... Uh, understanding of what happened, a wrong, quote, story, then it's hard to let go of something uh, because it does increase risk on the superficially. It also increases opportunity in reality. You've, you've been a, reportedly someone who the president might look at for one of these spots on, on the Fed Reserve Board of Governors. You've spoken out against the, the Fed, of having the Fed in the first place. Just give us a sense here of the hypothetical. Play that out for us. If you were appointed, how you would navigate that thorny thicket as somebody who's called for the dissolution of the institution itself. I think that would be tricky, I'm, you know, because uh, I do really think that the Fed's done a lot of damage. I, and I think that the Fed itself will admit they caused a Great Depression. I think 20 years from now, they'll admit they caused a 2007-2009 Great Recession, uh, uh, that, that they've made mistakes in monetary policy that have had severe consequences. I think 20 years from now, they'll admit they, put, they actually kept the economy from growing as fast as it, it should by tightening lending standards too much after the, after the recession, which is a classic bureaucratic reaction yeah. to minimizing risk. So it, 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 it would be, you know, the, the reason to participate would be hopefully to uh, help them understand they aren't as smart as they think they yeah. are. Right. <laughs> well, let's come back. John Allison with us uh, at Wake Forest. I like saying that, at Wake yeah. Forest. It's got a certain... Uh, ring to it. A very uh, beautiful campus, uh, I will say. Distinguished professor of practice at uh, Wake Forest. John, before David uh, hits you over the head with the current events, 
I need you to define, because I've had this in about six cocktail conversations in the last four days. John Tucker, you can't believe I've had six cocktail conversations in four days. Six in four. that That's more than one. <laughs> John Ellison, help me here with a definition of libertarian. I tell people that Cato has a sense of individual liberty associated with a traditional libertarian theme versus what I call pseudo-libertarianism of the day or sort of almost neo-Austrian libertarianism. Explain the Cato difference versus modern alt-libertarian views. We say that Cato's mission is to create a free and prosperous society based based on the principles of individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace. And we are serious about limited government. We think the government ought to stay out of your pocketbook. We also say that, that it should stay out of your bedroom. We do think government has a role, but its role is to protect individual rights, <clears throat> to keep me from using force of fraud to take what you earned, and to keep you from taking force of fraud from what I've earned. So we think the government has three legitimate functions, we need a national defense to protect us from bad guys overseas, police to protect us from bad guys in our neighborhood, and a far more effective court system than we have today so that you and I, if we have a dispute, we don't have to resort to violence to, to settle that dispute. In our world, we'd have 95% less regulations and far more effective and efficient courts than we have today. Where does regulation fit into that? There's a lot of talk about repealing or repairing uh, Dodd-Frank. What would you like to see done to that within the Cato framework, within that libertarian framework? What what kind of financial regulation should exist in the U.S. today? Well, I mean, it depends on uh, – let me tell you what our pipe dream would be, recognizing we're a long way from there. We believe that, that there's no reason the government should be in the money business any more than it should be running Exxon. <laughs> uh, we think that, that money uh, is a natural phenomenon. It was developed long before – governments took control of it and that, that, that we ought to have a private banking system where individuals put money in banks and banks keep proper amount of security for that in, uh, uh, money as, as how the traditional banking system really was until the Fed and, and, and the government got heavily involved in banking. So in that, in that, that kind of world, markets would discipline banks. Yeah. And, and, and interestingly enough, before that exists, before we got the government involved in banking, or in countries where we've had what we call free banking, which is, we've never had in the United States, by the way. The 1800s was not a free banking in the United States. Banks had much more capital, and their failure rate was very small. Canada had a free banking system, and they had very okay. basically no bank failures. But we expanded credit coming out of the Depression and World War II for a right. host of larger strategic reasons. I would suggest that Mr. Jefferson... His colleague in crime, Mr. Madison, and their arch enemies, Adams and Hamilton, never had to worry about derivative instruments and in, in <laughs> modern finance. I mean, the, your critics would say you're working with a nostalgic view. No, I, I don't think we ought to go back to the 1800s. That's, that's naive. I don't think we ought to go back to horse and buddy, buggies. But I do not believe it is self-evident that the system we have today is the best system. We do know we had the Great Depression when we had central banking <clears throat> and that we didn't have anything like that before we had central banking. We know we just had a, the most serious economic correction since the Great Depression and not very long ago when we had the Federal Reserve. So, so, no, I don't think we ought to go back to the 1800s. What I do think is that there may be market-based solutions 
solutions. And what markets do is experiment. But when the government controls it, it's very similar to the public school system. Uh, it's like it's naive to believe we couldn't have better schools than the public schools. Now, does that mean the public schools are all bad? No. Does it mean the Federal Reserve is all bad? No. But are there better solutions that markets would derive? And I think the answer to that is self-evident if you look at markets where the government hadn't interfered. Technology uh, as a classic example. So what we need is experimentation, and then markets come up with solutions that bureaucrats can't do. So think about the job of the Federal Reserve. We know that price fixing never works, right? We've seen it in all kinds of areas. Well, here's a group of people trying to fix the price of money, interest rates. It's the most complicated price in the world and the most important price. Can you imagine if we had a group of people trying to set the price of wheat every meet every two months? I guarantee you we'd have gluts of wheat and shortages of wheat constantly. I mean, markets adjust those prices every few minutes, right, or every literally every second, but, but every few minutes. And I just don't think that central-driven institutions in a complex world are optimal solutions. No, no I don't want to go back to the 1800s, uh, but... but we got jet planes now, and the Federal Reserve really hadn't evolved. Very analogous to public schools, in my view. John Allison, help me understand the role that Peter Thiel is playing in this administration. He's somebody who's written for the Cato Institute before, a very public uh, libertarian thinker. Uh, you, ha- you have the technology industry looking to him as maybe a conduit to get to Washington, to the Trump White House. Do you see him similarly as a libertarian? Is he somebody within the administration, uh, albeit not formally, but who has the ear of the president who could uh, voice some of the suggestions and concerns that you have? I, I think he has the year of the president, how much effect he has. I mean, I, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, with President Trump. And my, my observation, he's very attentive at that time, but he seems to be influenced by the, the, first, the next person sitting <laughs> with him. So, you know, how, how you sustain his attention is something I don't, have the, I don't have the answer to. You know, libertarians are very split, by the way, on the Trump presidency. Uh, they like the deregulation, the reducing of taxes. Uh, they like the fact that the kind of people he's, he's – talking about putting on the Supreme Court, but they're scared to death of his immigration policy, of his lack of free trade support, because libertarians are very much free trade, uh, and they're also worried that he's not going to do anything about deficits. So, so that you kind of got a, a, a real mix among libertarians about their feelings about the, the president. Let me ask one last question here selfishly about the state of North Carolina, where you are and where I'm from. What's the, what's the status of libertarianism in North Carolina right now? You've seen Governor McCrory lose his bid for re-election. Uh, is social conservatism on the wane and is libertarian rising? How do, how do you see the role of libertarianism there in North Carolina, in the South more generally? I think libertarian is rising, but it's still definitely a minority position. I think the, the state is still mostly socially conservative. And that's where, of course, libertarians are socially liberal. <laughs> so uh, I think the state is moving in that direction in some ways, but there, it's kind of split like a lot of places. The, the urban markets, are, I think, are becoming more libertarian. Some, yeah. In some ways, they're becoming more liberal, which is not libertarian. In other ways, they're becoming more libertarian, but the rural areas remain very socially conservative. Great to speak with you, as that always. That was the John most Nelson. inside baseball question oh, well, that, last that I've was, ever yeah, heard on yeah, surveillance. <laughs> Pretty soon you're going to talk about craft beer in North well, Carolina. Yeah, we could get like there. We'll Bootsy move out west or a little farther. Hop Drop and Roller, Medora, Red <laughs> Angel. You know, I that. You know, that's you're a bigger expert than I am. I'm that was impressive. Start, that was their best. That's the whole six pack. The six cocktail <laughs> yeah. parties in the past four days. John, I think we've got to do some upstate New York questioning here oh, after a girl okay. over the yeah. North Carolina. We'll do it. We'll do it. Do you know what I watch this weekend? I mean, how can you have a weekend like this and not watch Slapshot? 
It was good to see the Charleston Chiefs take them, take them on. We continue worldwide, coast to coast, in Syracuse. This is Bloomberg. There were a number of pieces over the weekend looking uh, at the National Security Council under Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, uh, moving away from the orthodoxy, doing things different, a bit of tension within the ranks of the NSC uh, as well. Who better to talk about that than Peter Fever, who's a professor of political science and public policy at Duke University, who is a special advisor for strategic planning and institutional reform on the NSC during the George W. Bush administration. Peter, it's great to have you with us. Let's, let's start by talking about the way the NSC is supposed to operate, indeed how different it is from administration to administration. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Let me first distinguish between the NSC, which refers to the committee of cabinet-level officials chaired by the president, and the NSC staff, which is a group of some 200 or so uh, professionals drawn from all uh, departments and agencies that are staffing that National Security Council. So the reports today were really about uh, turmoil uh, on the National Security Council staff which is the group that uh, helps the National Security Council uh, advise the president. How big an operation uh, is that? How big has the the staff of the NSC become? Well, it it's grown to become too big under President Obama, uh, and there was a general consensus, including President Obama's national security advisor herself, uh, Susan Rice, that it had gotten too large. It reached as uh, north of 400 people. But that includes uh, professional uh, staff as well as technical support staff, the people who man the the Situation Room, uh, communications hubs. All of those uh, are added into that number, including all the people on Homeland Security. Uh, and all of those uh, functions put together added up to 400. The President Trump came in and said he was going to shrink the staff, and he's been doing that. Um, but the problem is, frankly, is not one of the size of the staff, but rather how well it functions together, and in particular, how well it's connected to what the president actually says and does. And that's where the Trump team has been struggling so far. How worried are you about it in light of what you've read, the articles that we've read in The Times and the Journal uh, this weekend and Foreign Policy and other outlets before that? Uh, Are you concerned about the way it's running? I I know that a number of those pieces have highlighted the fact that there isn't a paper trail, that there aren't places for staff members to air their grievances or counter opinions. Uh, How how worried are you right now? I am concerned. I... I I think that under President Obama, the criticism was that the National Security Council staff had become too strong, that it was micromanaging the interagency. It was in the knickers of the departments um, uh, in operational matters that it probably shouldn't have been involved in. And then the committees on the NSC system were dealing with very low-level tactical decisions rather than the bigger picture strategic So all of those criticisms were in the last administration. I think the problem we're facing today is very different, and that is an NSC staff that might be too weak, not too strong, but too weak, unable to run the system, unable to um, uh, deliver the boss on key policy issues. That's a different problem. Peter Favor of Duke with us right now, folks, as we look at the NSC. This is fabulous. Professor, has there been an historical before of a weak NSC like where we're heading right now, or is this absolutely original? 
No, we've had uh, stronger and weaker NSCs over time. Uh, the early Reagan uh, National Security Council uh, staff structure was 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 fairly weak. Um, the early uh, President Clinton National Security Council staff was weaker. I served on that one myself. I was on the NSC staff in 93-94 as well. And that one, uh, compared right. to strong NSCs, uh, was, was weak. But mm -hmm. but this one um, has has two problems. One is it's just still in the transition phase. It's a little bit slow in agreed. getting started. Yeah, agreed. And then, of course, the other is you have a very unconventional president who's promised to uh, set up unconventional systems, and that's been hard for the NSC to adjust to. The uproar that David and I have witnessed is singularly on the military presence on the NSC. Is the NSC supposed to be Pentagon-like and civilian, or is it a big deal that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has been removed? Is that correct? Uh, that is not correct. That's a, uh, I, I know those reports were out there, but those m reports were misleading. Okay. Okay. Um, the uh, the way the Trump team plans to to use the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, it's exactly how it was used, uh, how the chairman functioned under the Obama administration, and then the wording for it is word for word what it was under President Bush uh, Bush forty three. Then why the uproar? Oh, it's just uh, misreading. Um, I think there, uh, I, part part of it is Trump derangement syndrome. <laughs> you know, the people overreacting to everything that uh, President Trump did. What was unusual was elevating the position of of Bannon, the president's uh, top political advisor, and elevating him to be a um, a regular invitee to both the NSC and to the Principals Committee meeting. That was unusual. That deserved a lot of comment. It's getting a lot of comment and. Um, um, that that's a different matter, but the there wasn't a downgrading of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That that's just a misreading of of how the NSC functions. It's always been the case that if there's a principals committee meeting that does not cover issues directly related to the military or even indirectly related to the military, then the chairman might not attend. He might send a lower ranking subordinate to to represent him, and that and that. That's that's how Obama operated. That's how Bush operated, and and it wouldn't be unusual for the Trump administration to operate the same way. We'll come back in just a sec, but let me ask you about how the the involvement of a, a Steve Bannon would change or complicate the way the NSC is running. There was a report in Eric Schmidt yeah. uh, and David Sanger's piece yesterday about uh, Stephen Miller. I'm, I'm curious here if you taught Stephen Miller when he was at Duke running a deputies meeting. Does does their involvement uh, change the sort of tenor of, the, of those meetings? That is different, and I was surprised to see in that New York Times report that Stephen Miller um, reportedly chaired a deputies committee meeting. That that would be very unusual, um, and I I was one of those who criticized President Obama for the extent to which he involved his political staff in the national security planning process. I I thought that that was incorrect. I thought President Bush had set the right tone with a, a bright line between his national security planning process and then the separate political planning process and and bringing that together in the Oval Office, but not at lower levels uh, on the NSC. So I thought Bush had it right. I thought President Obama had it wrong. And, and frankly, President Trump has gone even further mm -hmm. in the direction that President Obama took us. And, and I think he's opened himself up for, for criticism. Yep. But it also leads to a, uh, a, a process that is um, a little bit undisciplined, perhaps chaotic, and that produces... Right. 
a concern throughout the the interagency and and frankly throughout our alliance and relationships um, around let, the world. Um, I go back a bit to a foreign affairs article, uh, Professor, just about the idea of what America should do. What should be our global vision, given the politics we've been handed? Well, I think in a sense that's part of what uh, the Trump administration is, has launched, and that is a, a national debate about the role the United States should play in in the globe. And there's been a 70-year consensus about uh, what made sense for the U.S. to do, namely take a global leadership role, even if that meant that the U.S. would bear a disproportionate amount of the burden. Um, and the President Trump, from his inaugural address, but also things he said in the campaign and since, has questioned the value of, of, of that role and, and looked for more of a uh, what he calls America first uh, and only America first. That's how he described it in the the inaugural. Um, what that actually means in practice, though, he hasn't laid, hasn't fleshed that out. That's part of what we would expect to see from the new mm -hmm. team. And uh, they've had uh, they've struggled outside out of the gate. You know, stumbled in a, on a number of process points. But they've also been slow in fleshing out their team, uh, and so that's meant that they've been behind the um, times in terms of laying out a larger vision. I expect that to come, though. In the in the weeks and months to come, I think the the president and his team is going to lay out in more detail what he means, uh, what his vision for the country is, and. Um, I think a lot of people expect it to be very unconventional. I wonder if he won't revert closer to the mean uh, under the pressure of the world events, pressure of reality, whether he might go back closer to something like uh, has governed U.S. foreign policy for the last 70 years. You've written that strategic communications matter. Uh, let's use Saturday night as an example. Uh, we got that email saying the president was going to deliver a statement at Mar-a-Lago at about 1030 uh, PM Wall Street time. In fact, he did that with the Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe. It was a very brief statement. Uh, I think just two sentences. The whole thing lasted about uh, two minutes. Let's use that as a, as a prism through which to look at how he's uh, communicated his foreign policy vision thus far. That was very effective. That one was very effective because he said something that uh, maybe surprised some people because it was a full-throated uh, endorsement of um, the alliance with Japan. And of course, previously he's uh, opined in news interviews that, that maybe uh, we're not getting a good deal from the U.S.-Japanese alliance. But here he stood right next, side-by-side uh, side with uh, the Japanese leader and said we're backing him 100%. And as strategic communications go, that was very effective. Uh, and I think reassured quite a few people in quite a few leaders uh, in Asia. That was effective. What was ineffective was the rollout of the order on um, how to uh, the, the ban on in incoming refugees from seven countries. They were not prepared for th the blowback. They didn't have good answers. It turns out they had misthought some of the technical issues. What about people with green cards? They had to change that within 24 hours. And they did mm -hmm. not equip their supporters with arguments right. and evidence. And, and so the rollout of that was very ineffective. Those are sort of mm -hmm. bookends of how to do it and how not to do it. Professor, give us a primer right now, back to the NSC, on security clearances. David Gura took months to get his security clearance. Just to be on the show. To be on right? Bloomberg yeah. surveillance. <laughs> but 
Is this a big deal? I mean, General Flynn's really at risk. I get that. One of his cohorts could not be appointed because I believe CIA said they can't have the right security clearance. Discuss that. Just get an open question. Inform us about what security clearances mean. So a security clearance means that you have been vetted by um, the government, uh, by the Office of Presidential Management, um, and they they hire out contractors who check everything about your background, what your credit, where you lived, your friends, what you've said to your friends, your personal habits, um, and this is uh, this says if you've passed this vetting, then we uh, can have some minimum level of trust in you, and you can hold uh, classified information. You can be, you know, deal in classified information. To, there's different levels of class of security clearances, and to work at the White House, you have to have one of the highest levels that there is. That's top secret SCI. Then secure comp- SCI stands for secure comp- compartmented information, um, and everyone who works in the national security community at the White House has to hold one of those clearances, and they're, they're hard to get because uh, if, there, if, if there are uh, questions in your background, uh, then um, you, you could be denied uh, that clearance. Just a last question. Being, Go ahead. Being de- I was just going to say, being denied a clearance doesn't mean that you're a problem, but it, uh, but it means that the, the, the security agency that was vetting you had had some concerns. Uh, maybe you had too many friends who were um, foreign nationals that they couldn't track down and, and ascertain you know, their stories. Uh, maybe you traveled too much and, and there were gaps in your foreign travel that they couldn't figure out where you were at such time. And those kinds of things can get can get you in trouble with a, mm, a security clearance. Just quickly here, I wonder about the role of relationships in foreign policy. We've been focused on uh, the bureaucracy of it here, but we saw over the weekend a president, at least to my eyes, trying very doggedly to establish a, a personal relationship with another foreign leader. Uh, is that something that all presidents try to do, or do you see it somehow different in this case, that Donald Trump uh, being new to the job, being new to politics generally, is, is, is trying to go at it in that way to forge sort of close personal relationships with these leaders? All presidents need to develop those personal relationships. When you have them, they help. When they're poor, they hurt. And so President Trump is absolutely right to try to forge close relationships with all of our uh, partners and allies. And, and I uh, applaud his efforts with uh, Abe. Yeah. I think that was, that was well done and obviously quite effective on the golf course yeah. using golf course diplomacy. Very good. Uh, Professor, thank great you, to so, speak with you so much with Duke University, Peter Favor, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.